So my name is Julia Black. I'm Pro-Director for Research here at the LSE. Um, and it's a, an honor to be here with you tonight for our fifth in this series of um, In Conversation events. And the series is part of a, a series of celebrations we have to mark the opening of um, the wonderful Student Center, which is just an amazing, I don't think, about to become an iconic piece of uh, the London landscape. And it's a Sauce Hock Student Center, uh, our first brand new building on campus for more than 40 years. And we thought this would be a fantastic way to open the Student Center by having conversations with some of our most famous and favorite uh, alumni. So I'm a favorite rather than a famous. <laughs> you might be a little bit of both. <laughs> so, so the student center itself, I think, is genuinely transforming the student experience at the LSE. Um, you know, compared to what you used to have as a student union to what there is now, and there really is a huge gap uh, in, in the two. And I think it probably is about the best student centre in the UK. So it's got a student union, has got a new home, and you've got state-of-art facilities here for all sorts of student activities, student societies, um, sports, socialising, eating, one or two drinks, possibly, when not revising, obviously. Um, and also shared with the LSE Careers, a face centre and residential services. And all of this is made possible by uh, fantastic donations, actually, from our donors, and in particular, Professor Saul Sweehock, after whom the building is named. So obviously, you have to have a special thanks for him. But the real reason we're here this evening is obviously to welcome um, Shuri Booth, who is a leading... I don't know how far out in front of the pack she is, actually. Um, barrister, a human rights lawyer, public lawyer. And back to the LSE, because um, she graduated here some time ago, um, fortunately before me, to be precise. just about, that was <laughs> 1975, yeah. fantastic. 1975. I think actually our pro-director for planning resources, George Gaskell, uh, joined the faculty in 1971, so he's, <laughs> he's, he's in Dubai at the moment trying to drum up, drum up some more money. I'm so glad to hear that. I went to one of the alumni events once and they had all the students, you know, all the people, mm. and he had to put them a badge saying which decade you were in. And it was really embarrassing to see how few people there were from the 1970s. <laughs> well, thanks. well, it's fantastic to have you back. And I know you come back often and play a very active role in the LSE life. So she, as I said, is a leading, a leading barrister, but she also sits as a part-time judge, is an accredited mediator. She was awarded a CBE in 2013 New Year's Honours List for services to women's issues and to charity in the UK and overseas. And she has what I think is a fascinating initiative, a Foundation for Women, uh, which she founded in 2008. And obviously, I think we're going to talk a lot about that work and her, her role as a lawyer and her role in charity work um, at tonight's event. Now, for Twitter users, those of you on Twitter, okay, the hashtag is hashtag LSE Sorcery. And as usual, after the discussion between myself and Sheree, there'll be a chance for everybody to ask questions um, and then also to have a drink with us at the end and uh, we put some money behind the bar. Okay, so that's always something to look forward to. But now, please welcome me in joining Sheree back to the LSE for this evening. So, Sheree, I have to ask you, as an alumni, and we're sitting here in the Students' Union Centre, is what was, what was the biggest impact on the LS, of the LSE on you, do you think? What's it been its biggest impact? It's, um, well, it certainly instilled in me a love of the law. 
Mm-hmm. My husband was a student at Oxford at the same time, and I have to say, Oxford University singularly failed in their um, <laughs> law course to do that to him. And uh, whenever I used to say how much I love studying the law, he would think I was completely loopy. But that was because while he was doing Roman law here at the LSE, even in 1972, we had the groundbreaking public law courses. I studied human rights. I studied African law with uh, Professor Simon Roberts. African tribal law, which, would you believe it, actually, I have some use for uh, in, in my legal practice today, but you know, yeah. uh, um, we're... It was just a, a great place to be and, and at the forefront. And I know public law is one of your areas of expertise. And, and, you know, when we were studying public law with John Evans here and with Professor Griffiths, mm-hmm. um, that was all about law as part of the social sciences, as you know, is very much involved in politics. All of that still excites me today as much as it excited me then and um, I think I know because I got a message that uh, one of my fellow students who we we shared a room together in um, Passfield Hall is here tonight and I'm sure oh in fact I can see you now Caroline I can (laughs) (laughs) Um, and um, I I think that that love of law is something that uh, we, we all take away from this the other big thing I mentioned Passfield Hall was just it was a real change of lifestyle for me mm. to come down to the LSE because I came from a working class home in mm. Liverpool. I come down to the to the big city, and um, you know I can assure you the student facilities weren't anything like this. Uh, you are so spoiled. When Caroline and I were sharing our room in Passfield Hall, mm-hmm. there were three of us in the room, which I don't think really happens anymore at all, does it? Um, for me, the for me the the big thing was that the, there were showers, and I could actually have a shower every day in my home. Uh, we had coal fires heating the the water, and so we would all have a bath once a week, you know. And then going back home after that, it was actually it was actually quite a weird adjustment yeah. um, uh, to realise that there were so many people in this country who could have a bath every day, <laughs> you know, whereas where I lived, you know, we, we, yeah. we, we just didn't. So it introduced me to a whole new way of life, a way of life that obviously I live now, not the way of life I used to. But it was very, very odd because I was the first person in my family to go to university. So no one really knew what that meant. Yeah. And I remember that when I first came down, just a week before I was due to come to the LSE, and I was a, I'd been advanced at school, so I was, I was just turning 18. Mm. So I was young anyway. And LSE contacted me and said, and we're a bit worried because you don't appear to have anywhere to stay. And my mum said, but she's been accepted at the LSE. Don't you find her somewhere to stay? And, you know, we had no idea yeah. that that was our responsibility. So poor London University then found me a place in what was essentially a, um, a convent mm-hmm. that looked after girls at the teacher training college. <laughs> uh, 
and Caroline, you may well remember this, four days after the student induction, mm -hmm. my first great advocacy feat was going to Passfield Hall and persuading them that they could not send me back to the, um, to the convent, that you know, I, had to, I had to live in Passfield Hall, which is probably why they squeezed me in as one of Excellent. three First successful case. My yeah. first successful advocacy was obviously on my own behalf. Yeah. Set you forward. My other great memory coming here is that uh, often my children, when they were teenagers, would accuse me of being embarrassing. I can't Ooh. imagine why. Um, no parent but, is ever embarrassing. No, no but I, I, I always pointed out to them that in 1972, when I came down to the LSE, where the Peacock Theatre is now, my father was appearing in the stage production of O Calcutta, which meant he was nude on the stage <laughs> every night. Uh, no, you didn't see full frontal pictures outside. Um, uh, everyone knew what was going on inside. I said to him, I say to the kids, that is embarrassing. And, you know, really anything I do cannot match that. Absolutely. So you guys are lucky in more, more ways than you thought, I think, as being students here and not having that experience. <laughs> But in terms of just, you know, taking that forward, what was the, what was the bar like at that, in those days, as being a, you know, a woman in the bar in, in the, what, late 1970s, early 1980s? It was, a, a, again, a completely different experience. And perhaps the one thing that the LSE didn't prepare me for was the reality of what uh, life in the law was like for women at that time. Because... Um, I got I passed the eleven plus, so I'd gone to a girls' grammar school, <coughs> a Catholic grammar school. The nuns there had always told us that as girls, if we worked hard and you know, mm -hmm. we, we could we could achieve our dreams. And I came down to the LSE, and and the LSE basically also suggested that that was the case. And indeed, since it's sad, as my kids would say, but also true, since I got the top first at the LSE yeah. in law, and then I came top of the bar finals. When it came for me to practice as a lawyer and to try and find yeah. a place at pupillage, I naively thought that that would be enough. And then I learned that there was one, well, maybe even two great difficulties. Mm. The greatest difficulty, of course, was I was a girl. The second one was, because of my background, I didn't know anybody. Yeah. I didn't know anybody. Mm -hmm. um, so whatever possessed me to think that I would be able to become a barrister was probably due to that confidence that, that had yeah. been imbued in me. And, you know, at that time, when I went round trying to find pupillage, you know, people would actually say, well, we don't take women. Wow. You know, we don't take yeah. women. Uh, this is 1976. Um, the Night Sex Discrimination Act was passed in 1975, but it didn't apply to self-employed people at yeah. that time. So it wasn't unlawful for them mm -hmm. uh, to say that. Now, the really right-on ones would say, oh, we take women, but we've got one. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, what would we do if the two of you became pregnant at the same time? Um, now, I can assure you that you would not find anybody saying that yeah. in, in, in the law today. And the whole times have changed. Uh, when I was called to the bar in 1976, it was the first year that the number of women called to the bar went into double figures. The year before yeah. it had been 9%. That year it was actually 16%. Oh, wow. um, 
and uh, you know my daughter was called to the bar at Lincoln's Inn last year and you know over 50% of the students were women so that has completely changed um, as well so what what, what was it like Um, it was difficult to say because that's just the way it is and at the end of my year's pupillage Derry Irvin who later on became Lord Chancellor Mm -hmm said to me, look, he said, Cherie, you know, there is only one place in these chambers and there are two candidates, really. There's you and the boy. And obviously, we've got to take the boy. And, you know, I accepted that. Obviously, they had to take the boy because they just assumed that the boy would be a safe bet and that, one, I think they thought I was quite political and, two, they thought, anyway, she'll probably get pregnant and leave the bar. The irony, of course, and it's why you should never, ever make sexist assumptions, is that, well, firstly, the boy agreed that I was the better lawyer. And uh, secondly, uh, in, that was 1977, by 1983, he had left the bar to go on to do something else. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he was called Tony Blair. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, here I am, still a lawyer. You know, Absolutely. He's, he's doing he's something. He's frittered his life away. He's frittered his, frittered life, his away. life away. <laughs> but you've been you know, pioneering for women's issues. And one of the things I did want to ask you about, and as I said, my remarks, because I'm not sure how many people know about it in comparison to their knowledge of your legal career, is your foundation for women that you have. So I was just wondering why, why that initiative and what drove you to do that uh, and what impacts do you think it's had? Well, a number of things. Firstly, you're right. I've always been very passionate about women's rights and I was very lucky because, again, you know, Tony had no chance to study employment law, but here with Professor Wedburn and mm-hmm. Professor Grunfeld, I had a fantastic grounding in employment law. Derry Irvin happened to do that. And I was able, therefore, to build a practice in that area, um, doing lots of groundbreaking cases and on beyond sex discrimination to, to the whole range of, mm. of, of human rights um, law. So women's issues have always been an issue of mine, not least because um, I was brought up by two very strong women, my mother mm. and my grandmother, my father having left us when I was eight. Mm. And, you know, my mum and grandmother both left school at 14 for different reasons. Mm. Neither of them had the chance of the education that I had. Mm. And, you know, um, when people say to me, oh, you've done very well, I always actually say, well, imagine what my mother and my grandmother could have achieved if they'd had my opportunities. And I am very conscious that we are very privileged, all of us in this room, because, you know, in my case, I was born when I was and where I was Mm. when opportunities for women were opening out. And across the world today, there are still women who are more living in societies where the opportunities are maybe at my grandmother or my mother's level or failing that, more similar to the obstacles to my opportunities that I found in the 1970s in, in our country. Yeah. And so if I can do something to help them accelerate that process and not necessarily repeat the length of time it's mm. taken us to make the progress that we've made or indeed to make some of the mistakes that we made along the way, that would be a very yeah. positive thing. The other thing that I realized was I wanted to do something to, to fill a gap. And 
I believe that though education is absolutely important mm -hmm. and it made all the difference to me, the other thing that made the difference to me as a woman was that I had the ability to make my own living, to get mm -hmm. and spend my own money as I chose. And I think women who have financial independence are able to make choices. They can walk out of abusive relationships. They can decide that their girls and yeah. their children generally will go to school. They can make decisions about their lives, which mm -hmm. if they are completely financially dependent, yeah. it's much more difficult for them to do. So when having skipped over a lot of years and, uh, and an amazing experience 10 years in 10 Downing Street, I thought, what can I do to use that experience and give back? Yeah. I wanted to concentrate on helping women in the developing world get financial independence by helping them set up, grow and expand their small businesses. Yeah. The other reason is, of course, as a barrister, I am a small business. Yes. Yeah. You know, actually, it was like when, when I had my kids and uh, when I had my first, it was only when I had my third daughter that I, there, there was actually any maternity arrangements made for women barristers. Up, and, up until then, that's 1988, mm -hmm. my, my, my third daughter. Up until then, even though I was pregnant, um, I was expected to continue to pay the full Chambers rent that I had to pay for my room and my full contribution to Chambers expenses, despite the fact that though I only took four months maternity leave with my first child and less than that with my second, despite the fact that I wasn't earning any money. Yeah. It was only in the when Catherine came along that the other woman in Chambers, we actually did have that double maternity problem. And she, she actually was very sick during her pregnancy. I always managed to, you know, yeah, just, just physically vomiting. Yes, I mean... Sorry about this, men, but Big these reason. things Sorry. <laughs> months up here. Yeah. You know, so, so she really had to have special arrangements made. So when they started making some arrangements of them, I sort of said, um, well, how about me too? <laughs> I know I'm kind of just some sort of workhorse, but honestly, <laughs> it would be quite nice to have uh, a little bit of time rent-free. So, so, but you know, as yeah. a barrister, you're self-employed. Subsequently, I was involved in in those chambers splitting and setting up their own chambers. After that, of course, in 2000, I set up mm -hmm. Matrix Chambers, and, and 2008, I set up um, my own foundation. And then two years ago from now, I've also set up uh, Omnia Strategy, which is a, 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 yeah. a, an alternative business structure. So actually, I am a bit of a serial entrepreneur, and therefore I wanted to to help uh, other women yeah. who might have that that urge to do the same. Yeah, I think that's one of the things people, you know, the bar, you know, it is a business, and and the legal services business is a rapidly changing market. And in fact, even the evolution that you've described there in the development of your, you know, legal practice, the way that the bar works, the move then to ABSs. I was just thinking with. You know, with the collapse now in legal aid and the impact mm -hmm. that that's having on the, the criminal bar, obviously that's having... And the family bar, too. And the family bar, because mm -hmm. it's got knock-on, and then knock-on consequences coming through both the court system, but also for the, for the business of being a lawyer. I, I wondered if you had any reflections on where you think the future of both the independent bar and the legal profession as a whole may be going, given given the possibility now of doing all the different creative things that you yourself have been doing, multidisciplinary partnerships, alternative business structures, you know, the law as a business. 
where that might be going. Well, one of the things, of course, the LSE taught me all those years ago is that the law is more than a business. Mm. The law is a fundamental part of what makes our democracy function. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we don't uh, enable our population to have access to justice, then the government is fundamentally failing Mm -hmm. in one of its basic tasks. Uh, The problem is uh, when you say, uh, you know, we need to support legal aid, uh, there's been quite a clever campaign which suggests that all lawyers are fat cats who make mm-hmm. loads of money. But anyone who knows anything about the lawyers who work day in, day out at the family bar, at the criminal bar, who do the human rights work in immigration or in mental health, mm-hmm. uh, and for 10 years I was chair of the panel of the Legal Aid Lawyer of the Year Award, and I would be constantly... Um, blown away by the devotion that the legal aid lawyers had, not just to to the work they were doing, which was groundbreaking, but also actually the way they always would go that extra mile for their clients because they cared about the real human beings that they were working with. And one of the problems with the, the legal aid changes is that, you know, so much of that work, so much of the development in public law has been built on lawyers being able um, to take cases funded by the state. And that is going to be much more difficult in the future. But it's not only the the consumers of the law that Mm -hmm. will suffer from that, because on the other side of that, uh, again, back in the 1970s when I went into the law, one of the reasons that a working-class girl like me had a chance was because of the expansion of legal aid, yeah. thanks to the Labour government. Um, bit of a plug. Because a bit of a plug, but, you know, these things matter. Yeah. You know, we have had a change, and it's not mm. perhaps unconnected with the fact that we have a change of government too. Mm. And um, that expansion of the law meant that people like me mm were able to, to have a career at the law and to support themselves. I see it with my daughter, um, less so with my daughter, because I can support her and she wants to do family mm. law. Um, but I see it with her friends, uh, with you know the different yeah. situation that they're in, and how are they going to, to, to make a living any, any, anymore doing this sort of work? Yeah. Now, I believe that, you know, I don't want to be all doom and gloom, um, because I think that... Uh, somehow or other, we will find a way. Yeah. And the consequences of the legal aid reform are already being seen. I mean, we, we just had a case just yesterday, didn't it, when a trial was stopped, yep. wasn't it? Or because the person uh, couldn't be adequately represented. Um, I know from friends of mine uh, who are judges who are telling me in the county court now, if you've got a non-family law case, whether it's a landlord and tenant dispute or a small claims dispute, unless it's going down the fast track, well, you might as well forget about getting a hearing before a judge because the priority is given rightly to the children's cases. And uh, since more and more of those and then the family law cases are not having lawyers to smooth the way, the judges, you know, are getting bogged down. Um, So... There are consequences of cutting yeah. the legal aid budget, and eventually, even a, a Lord Chancellor that seems to not only be a non-lawyer, which, uh, since my husband introduced that, mm. um, 
you know, is, is something maybe you can justify. But it seems to be somebody who has no concept of the rule of law or the obligation of the yeah. Lord Chancellor to uphold it. Then I think um, at some point, mm. uh, even if this is all about money, mm. they're going to realize that without spending some money yeah. on, on legal services, um, it's going to start impacting the public in a way when they're just saying all lawyers are fat cats and complaining that they can't make millions isn't going to work anymore. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we should open this out now, the discussion, because I could talk to Cherie for ages, right, and I'm quite happy to monopolise her all evening, uh, but that wouldn't be quite the point. So um, questions, time for questions now. So if you could just put your hand up. We have some roving mics. We have some people uh, conveniently dressed in bright red, uh, who will be able to uh, come towards you. So I've got a gentleman at the back or in the middle coming down here, a lady just in front of him, and then a gentleman at the front. I think we might take two or three questions and roll them up um, rather than taking one at a time. That will sort of speed things up. Note, um, yeah, so you might need to, uh, <laughs> sure you can remember them. So, yes, gentleman just with the mic there. Um, how, um, how optimistic are you? Your name? Yeah. Sorry, uh, my name's uh, Maurice, and I'm a first-year law student uh, uh-huh. here. Um, how much, pro- how much progress do you really see you being able to make um, within your lifetime, within my lifetime, in, in uh, the developing world with regards to women's rights, when women's rights uh, in the developed world um, seem to be so, you know, moving forward so stubbornly, slowly? Um, I think this is both on sort of representation, for example, in the political sphere, but then also on things like uh, domestic violence and rape as well, where they... You know, some say it's even sort of regressing. We, we've got no women on the front bench, and and rape seems to be uh, it's a continuing problem. Okay, okay. and there's lady just in front, <coughs> and then gentleman to the front. Uh, good evening, Mrs. Blair. My name is Sana, and Sana Musharraf. I'm from Pakistan, and I'm a student in uh, the law department here. Um, I am just intrigued to know and learn from you. You did have very humble beginnings. But looking back, um, what you have been able to contribute or still are contributing, um, how would you summarize or what message or lesson would you give, especially to a female like me? I come from uh, a country where there's high degree of discrimination, and that's what made me stubborn uh, to to do something and alter the reality. But uh, what can we take away from your learnings, from your process, and not repeat the mistakes? Thank you. Okay, excellent. Fortunately, you have some time to think about that because this gentleman is going to ask you a question as well. Rishi Madlani, also a former pass fielder. Um, I'm mm-hmm. delighted about the work you do now. And I hear Are you a lot in of a room for three, by the way? I was in a, a double room, fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine how close that was. Um, I, I'm delighted about the work you do, and I actually hear a lot about it because you employ another former LSE alumna um, who was also a pass fielder, actually, in your fundraising team, Laura Stebbing, oh, and yes. I hear a lot about the great work you yeah. guys do. Um, what a, I, look at, I look at the current political makeup, and there are, there are a, a shortage of strong female candidates in the Labour Party. And looking at Hillary's success across the pond, have you ever considered uh, following in, your, in the footsteps of your husband? <laughs> you don't have to answer all questions which you put to you, by the way. <laughs> Should have said that right at the beginning. Well, I can deal with them um, in, in the order they came. Maurice, you, you ask about. You know, what do I feel about progress in the developing world? Well, let, let, me, let me first of all say that I am optimistic, 
And though uh, nowhere in the world, there is nowhere in the world that women have achieved total equality for men, looking at the, the history in my life and seeing that we have made a lot of progress, I absolutely see no reason why that progress shouldn't continue. And my absolute determination is that the 21st century will be the century when finally women get the chance with equal dignity and equal respect to play their equal role in the world, which frankly is the best way because actually when men and women work in partnership in whatever field it is, in business, in politics, in the family, you get better decisions and, uh, uh, and, you know, a, a better place. So I'm very much in, um, in favor of that. As far as women's equality across the world goes, if you look at the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report, which I launched its first one when I was still in Downing Street, and it's still going, it's still going on. It seems like only yesterday, but it's probably about... Mm, seven years ago now, or even eight years ago, um, the latest report shows, by measuring the gender gap, by looking at the relative uh, position between men and women in the different countries that they measure it, that across the world, if you look at opportunities for education, this is not assessing the quality of the education they're getting, because there are plenty of developing countries where the quality of the education isn't great, but nevertheless, if you're looking at the equal access you're getting over 90% um, equality, so 90, you know, nine women to every 10 men. If you're looking at issues about women's health, and again, we know too many women die in childbirth, too many women in places like Pakistan, where I've been and talked about breast cancer awareness campaigns, you know, don't present soon enough for any treatment, even if the treatment was available to, to, to be successful. But nevertheless, in... in um, Health and so the, the, the gap between men and women is again coming towards that. But then the two other areas they measure is economic yeah. um, involvement. And there the gap between men and women is 60% for women. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at political involvement, I'm afraid it's a, a paltry 20 odd percent. So what this shows us is that despite progress in women's education and health, when it comes to sharing the uh, big things in the world, whether it's economic development or political development, Mm. women are still not getting their fair share. And we have to do more to ensure that happens. But if you're looking at the developing world, actually, look at the moment. South America, three women presidents. Africa, three women presidents now, if you count Central African mm-hmm. Republic. Um, Europe, we don't do so well. And as you've rightly, or someone rightly pointed out, you know, America hasn't had a single uh, women president. And I totally believe that political power is important. I often tell the story of knowing, as I do, President Johnson Sirleaf of Liberia, going with her at one time to a conference in Rwanda, where, we, where of course, now there are 64% or 69% of their parliament are women. Mm-hmm. It's getting to the stage where the provision in their constitution, which says no sex can have more than a th- two-thirds of the members of parliament, is going to have to be activated on behalf of the men. Though do remember women are in the majority there because so many men died in the genocide. Mm. Um, 
But anyway, she went. She told this wonderful story, Ellen, about shortly after she became the first woman ever to be elected a president of an African state. Mm-hmm. She went on one of the official visits to a school with a with a visiting dignitary. Having been a visiting dignitary, yeah, yeah. I, I know this scenario very well. And the, the children were getting a bit restless after, particularly in Africa, they, they do like giving long speeches. <laughs> which possibly is not so great for the eight-year-olds. <laughs> and um, one, one of the male teachers started to you know, tell the children, you know, chastise the children for being a little bit restless. And a little eight-year-old girl piped up and said to him, Sir, be careful what you say to me, because one day I might be president. <laughs> and Ellen was absolutely thrilled, because a year before, no girl standing on the African continent Mm. could have thought that a woman could become president because there wasn't one to see. Now, actually, as I say, there are three to see. And what that says, and it's also what, um, when you were asking me about um, some of the, the lessons I've learned, role models are so important. And I often say to not just females, but also to, to young men who come from, you know, non-traditional backgrounds too. But if someone like me can do it, then you can too. And, you know, unless we have those stories to tell, and if all we see are privileged, um, homogeneous people in positions of power, uh, you know, we're not going to change the world. So I, I remain always one of life's great optimists. Um, and um, I'll, you know, maybe I am stubborn, uh, but it's not necessarily um, a bad quality. Now, if I was a man, they might say I was single-minded and determined. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the problems that women often face, particularly uh, women who push themselves forward, is the, the sort of negative words that are often used about them. Aggressive. Yeah. Aggressive. yeah. So don't be put off by what other people are trying to put on you. You know, Hillary Clinton once said to me when I'd just become married to the prime minister. I mean, obviously, I'd been married to Tony for longer than that, but married to the prime minister. (laughs) What you have to realize is you're not going to be able to please everybody. So remain true to yourself and do what you believe is right for you. And to answer uh, our third question, of course, would I love to see Hillary Clinton as, uh, as president of the United States? Of course I would. <laughs> um, and I'm sure there can't be many people who weren't moved when she made her glass ceiling speech, yeah. when, she, when she conceded to Barack Obama. Mm. Um, and, you know, if she can finally crack that glass ceiling, bearing in mind that if we think we don't have enough women in our parliament, it's much worse in America. And why does it matter? Well, I'm very proud of the fact that in 1995, 96, when Tony became leader of the Labour Party, he did carry forward a programme which had all women shortlist. It was a programme that was actually eventually challenged by a man in the employment tribunals as sex discrimination. Uh, And indeed, the case was lost, but the law was changed anyway. But you know, when over a hundred, for the first time, over a hundred MPs were women, mm. um, and when you think, 1979, we had our first woman Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. In that parliament, there were more MPs called John than there had been 
ever women MPs if you counted them out right back to the 1920s when they first became MPs. So that was a very small percentage of women. So when we got to 100, which is still not good enough, by the way, um, uh, and despite the fact that the, the, the press tried to dismiss them all as Blair's babes, they did make a difference. For a start, they made Parliament look different. Secondly, they actually changed some of the procedures in Parliament to make it a bit more female-friendly and, frankly, friendly, friendlier to male who don't want to play silly debating games. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were the policies. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that men aren't also interested in things like maternity leave or low pay and uh, minimum wage um, and action against domestic violence. But I tell you that having the women in Parliament who are interested in that um, affected all sorts of areas of policy, and that's a good thing and something that, that, that we should uh, be, be proud of. Fantastic. Marvellous. Other questions? And we'll do the same. I'll take two or three. I think there's a gentleman at the back who's had his hand up before. I think there's a lady in the middle. So somebody with a mic spotted the lady in the middle. We'll take the gentleman at the back first, please. If you could just, you might need to speak up and and say your name and where you're from as well. Sure. Uh, Hello, Cherie. Thank you very much for the talk. Um, Jay Cantaria, uh, Economics and Development Studies alumni. I'm Um, just trying to see where you are. Where are you? I'm at the back. At the back, yeah. No problem. (laughs) Jake. Jay. Jay. That's fine. Um, The question I had was... um, Obviously, you've had a very interesting career. You've you've been involved in many things. Um, How do you balance... Uh, work and home life um, and and also the other balance I wanted to inquire about was you've got your foundation but I, I am also aware that um, for example the Lumba Foundation I know you're actively involved with that I wanted to ask how you balance how many foundations you get involved in I'm at the start of my journey that's why I'm asking these questions Excellent, good questions, good questions. Uh, and yes, lady in the middle thank you Hi, um, my name is Malvika. I'm a second-year law student. Um, oh, and I am in a triple in Passfield, so they do still exist. Oh, good. Well, no, not so good. I don't know. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask why you decided to set up Matrix in 2000. Did you think that there was something lacking at the bar at the time, or if there was a gap to fill? What kind of ethos you wanted the Chambers to encapsulate? What kind of barristers you wanted to attract and train up and send out into the legal profession? Uh, do we have one more question? Yes, okay, lady, uh, lady at the front here, just one row from the front. Elizabeth Stayman, I'm an LSE alumni I'm in the Department of Industrial Relations, and I'm a governor of the LSE now. You spoke a little bit about um, having mentors and obviously having very strong role models through your mother and your grandmother, but what advice would you give to either students starting out here or perhaps your own children how to find mentors and how to use them in their journey in order to be outspoken and go the way which may be different and not you know, the way they might otherwise end up going? Okay, thank you. Okay, well, let let me thank Jay first of all. I'm so glad that it was a man who asked me about work-life balance and not a woman, um, because I feel so passionately that this is not a woman's issue. This is a a human issue, and it's about how everybody, men and women, 
uh, are rounded people. And as you say, it's not just about bringing up your children and balancing your work and your life. It's also about how you spend your life and how you divide it between your passions, whether it's politics or, or charity or the church or, or the <coughs> football or, uh, and, um, okay. and, and the way you earn a living. And uh, for too long, this area has been seen as, you know, oh, just on the mummy track. And uh, it's much more important than that. Uh, and what's been very interesting is on a lot of the research that's done about what attract bright young graduates to firms, um, it shows that it's sometimes even more important than the, mu- than the money, not just to the girls, but to the boys yeah as well. Having said all that, if I knew the solution to how you balance your work and life, I would be a very rich woman indeed, because it is the the big issue. Um, And I can't always say that I've got it right. Um, Looking back now, however, when I, when I first had my children, I was so determined to prove to those men in chambers that I wasn't going to be one of those women who, once they had a child, actually gave up mm. their career at the bar. That, you know, I didn't take a very long time off. Um, you know, I worked until they had to hospitalize me compulsory because they were, they, 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 they were, they, they were worried that the, the baby was a bit small. I have to say, after that, I continued to have small babies, so I was actually just destined to have small babies, but at the time, they were trying to guilt trip me on the basis that I was putting you know, my children's life in danger. Um, so I, would, I, I feel very passionately that we have to make provision for, for women during maternity and indeed uh, you know to allow fathers to bond with their children as well and I, I don't regard that as making special arrangements I just think that's us as a, as a society uh, realistically recognizing that if we care about the future of, of um, the future generation we have to make it uh, sensible and easy for men and women to be both parents and producers yep. um, I don't think you can have it all all the time but I do think that in a I mean what I first entered the workforce in 1976 so um, that's how many years is that that's a lot yeah it's, nearly 40 it's, it's a number <laughs> just yesterday just, just yesterday just yesterday but you know so the people sitting in this room particularly as retirement ages are being pushed they're, they're going to have a, a lifespan of a work span of 40 maybe even 50 years the idea that a choice about um, a few years of your life when you're specifically pregnant and, 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 and breastfeeding should dictate how the rest of that life should be uh, and I don't wish to suggest to anyone by the way that your obligations as a parent cease once you stop breastfeeding because mm. since I uh, my kids are now in, in their late 20s apart from Leo who's nearly 14 um, I know very well that those obligations continue but nevertheless uh, you know we can't push people into a particular track just because they take some time off but it may mean that at the time you are wanting to have your children, you may have to slightly uh, make some compromises in your career. It doesn't mean that later on, however, you shouldn't be allowed to, to catch up. And 
In my case, I was lucky, mm-hmm. perhaps because I was self-employed. Mm-hmm. I was able both to make some compromises and then uh, to catch up. And, you know, I want to see many more people having uh, those choices. Um, you, you um, I think probably... Uh, you were asking about Matrix. Why did I want to set up Matrix? Um, it was partly a, a, a response to uh, the fact that at the bar, it, I see it now with my daughter. Um, you know, when I went and started at the bar, I did crime. Mm. I did domestic violence and family law. I did personal injuries. I did contract. I did employment. Um, I did everything. You know, have wig, we'll make it up as you go along. Um, And I had a fantastic advocacy training as a result, being beaten up by judges week in, week out, you know, and learning as I I went along. These days, the the law has become much more compartmentalized. And in in, in that sense, it's a shame. And in Matrix, um, particularly in relation to human rights, we were very conscious when we were talking about it that there was this divergence between the criminal side and the civil side, and we wanted actually to encourage a lot more cross um, fertilization of ideas. You're also right when you ask me about Matrix in that we wanted to try and show that you didn't have to have, you could um, do it a little differently. So, you know, we were very radical so we don't call our pupils pupils we call them trainees and we don't call our clerks clerks we call them practice managers you know this is fabulously radical Um, and I remember to my cost that we had this marvelous idea that we wouldn't allocate rooms on the basis of seniority either but what we would do is we would um, have a ballot this was fine until I became, I came sort of like bottom of the ballot, which uh, was rather challenging for, for my principles. Uh, fortunately, um, not, 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 some of the people who went further up the ballot couldn't actually afford the slightly bigger room, so it, it all worked out well in, in the end. So you know, we wanted to be different, and sometimes that can be, can be challenging, particularly if you've got to the stage of your career when, having struggled all the way, you finally get to the place when actually you're supposed to be able to take advantage of all yeah. these advantages. <laughs> so it's quite hard to give them up. And um, Elizabeth, I was a governor of the LSE. I'm now still a governor emeritus too. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great thing to do, actually. And it, again, going back to life, work-life balance, you know, you need to be able to do these things to, get, to give back in some way. I absolutely believe that mentors are so important. Um, people who not only give you help and advice, but actually fight the fight for you. And though Derry, all those years ago, did say to me, look, I've got to take the boy. Nevertheless, he did fight for me as well. Yeah. And uh, even when I was in other chambers, would refer cases to me, bring me in on his cases. And subsequently, Michael Beloff did something similar for me. You know, and... It's no coincidence that many of my mentors were, in fact, men, because obviously there were fewer women um, in, in those days to be yeah. mentors to, to younger women. That's not the case now. It's, uh, there's a lot more women who um, can help men and women in the future. And actually, my foundation, um, we also have a, a huge mentorship program. Um, thanks to Google, 
we have a, a mentoring platform. So at the moment, we are mentoring a thousand women entrepreneurs in over 50 countries in the world who we our partner organizations who do business training refer to us. Mm-hmm. And these women have access to a computer and can speak English. So they don't have the smallest of the small businesses. But what they don't have is sufficient help and support and mentoring in their, in their own countries. And using the Internet, we match them with men and women mentors also across the world. And for a year, there's a partnership between the two where the mentor agrees to give up two hours a month to help a woman with a specific business plan and purpose Mm -hmm. to actually implement that. And we're having that at the moment um, validated by Oxford University Side Business School. And uh, we're very happy with the preliminary results, which we will be launching later on towards the summer to show that actually this reaching out across the world using the internet can really um, make a difference. So 90% of our women say, you know, it helped help them with business ideas. Uh, 30% of the women say without their mentor, they worried that they feel that their business would have not, um, could have well even gone under, but their mentor helped them see a better way to, to solve their problems. And the mentors themselves get so much yeah out of it, whether it's the mentors we get from Bank of America. We have 80 mentors from Bank of America every year, and they do it as part of their leadership training. So they identify the the talent of the future, and as part of their assessments, they are (coughs) assessed on how well they do with the women they mentor, and other companies have similar similar schemes. So for me, this is an amazing way of making a personal connection Mm -hmm. across the world um, to help uh, a woman who, by increasing her business skills, by growing and expanding her business, will employ others and um, increase her confidence and become a person who will change her society. Fantastic. Well, fantastic initiative. Brilliant initiative. Um, so, gentlemen, uh, just in the middle row, white shirt, hand up, and then a lady in the back row there, and then a gentleman down at the front. So, if you take those in that order. Thank you. If you again state your name and where you're from. Uh, my name is Michael Yu. I'm going to be a public law barrister in Hong Kong. Last summer, I, I worked on a political scandal involving the head of government in Hong Kong. And I, I just, I was wondering, um, as a junior starting out, would you recommend uh, active participation in politics or should one stay neutral uh, when, when starting out? Uh, so there was a, where was the next hand? Next hand was that lady there with the, yes, just there with the hand up, dark hair at the end, yes. And then the gentleman with the blue shirt. Hi, Jerry. I'm doing my master in law here at LSE. And my question is how do you think having fund or aid for lawyer candidates and thus by that having diversity in legal sector would benefit? to public ultimately. The reason why I'm asking this is actually in my country, Japan, the government recently has stopped funding lawyer trainee, although the part-time job is forbidden. So I would like to hear your thoughts on this. Okay, thank you. And there's a gentleman just at the front in the blue shirt. Hi, my name is Dan Martin. I'm a student governor here at the LSE. 
Uh, considering your experiences as a student here, back whenever it was, and this idea that the, that the LSE was... I think I've been condemned by... I think there's was, a building no, arc at the time. Um, <laughs> yeah. And this idea that the LSE was at the forefront of teaching law. Mm-hmm. The African law course, unfortunately, no longer exists. So what would be your ideal law course now? What would you design? And perhaps Julia could... I too am under no obligation to answer any question whatsoever, but it's a great question. Let me let me see with Michael from, from, from Hong Kong. There are some great lawyers in Hong Kong, by the way, and many of whom are involved in politics. I do think it's it, it's it's a personal choice. Uh, I mean, uh, I joined the Labour Party when I was 16 and I've always, as I said, I think part of the reason that they, they thought, well, they thought she's you know, so interested in politics, she won't stay as a lawyer. Meanwhile, Tony was keeping his mouth shut, but actually being much more interested in politics than I was. <laughs> um, so it depends. It depends. If, if it matters to you, then there's no reason to be political, uh, not to be political. Um, obviously, it's different when you're a judge. Um, my brother-in-law, who's a high court judge, uh, you know, he as soon as you become a high court judge, you have to renounce all political affiliation in, in, in this country. And, and, and indeed, as long as his brother was prime minister, really, that ruled him out as being a candidate for a judge. Um, so uh, there's such a... a and this is what the LSE actually did teach me. There's such an intertwining between law and politics that often having an understanding about how politics works and also the challenges for politicians. Um, I sometimes see, at the moment in the work I do with Omnia Strategy, we do a lot of international commercial arbitration advising governments. And I think there's a danger that too many people involved in commercial law have no sympathy and no understanding whatsoever for government. Personally, you know, I think government is a good thing. And though I also think that, uh, uh, you know, private enterprise is a good thing, I don't think that, you know, private enterprise, all good, government, all bad, is necessarily a great way uh, to to conduct international um, private law litigation. And there is a, some, mm-hmm. there are some t- trends in that. Yeah. Uh, and though there's a kickback now from the governments that are, that are disputing that, which has been a little bit yeah. t- too extreme in, in relation to that. So understanding politics, certainly the LSE taught me, is a very important part of, of being a lawyer. But it's up to, to you and what your, your passion is. And some lawyers feel that if they are identified at all with political parties, that uh, diminishes in some way what they do. For me, of course... Um, before my husband became prime minister, I did occasionally represent the government, the Tory government, uh, in cases. Once he became prime minister, that was out of the question. Uh, so then I used to case, take cases against the government, which didn't always go da- down too well with the officials in, in, um, in Downing Street. As for um, diversity in Japan, uh, as it happens, as you know, the Japanese prime minister is here at the moment. And I, I had lunch with myself just now. I had lunch with Mrs. Abe, yeah, who's a, you know, a, a fantastic woman and is very interested in women's issues. And indeed, we're talking about um, those issues at, at, 
at lunch. Well, I think from what I've said, I really, about my own country, I think diversity in the law is really important. And uh, particularly since the law does affect everyone, it doesn't only affect the rich or the middle classes, it actually often has its harshest effect on the poor. And if those who are judging the poor, those who are representing the poor, come from completely different backgrounds, you may not get uh, the best outcomes. But, you know, it's not just the law that needs diversity. Every profession needs diversity. And every society needs to ensure that the talent of all its people is recognised. And anything that's a barrier to that actually is just just to make economic sense in today's world. What, would I, what, what sort of courses would I do for, for, for at the LSE now? Well, uh, let me say, first of all, um, though the LSE was in the forefront in those days, these days, as I know, because my, both my second son and my daughter both you know, did study law, so the, many, many universities now do, uh, do a wide variety of courses, and so the, the, the options are um, almost open-ended. But, of course... Um, most people who come to law school do want to get the qualifications that's going to get them uh, into the professions. And so every law school has to build its courses around those compulsory core subjects. One of the questions sometimes is not so much um, what the subjects are, but how you teach them. Because uh, it goes back to what I was saying about my experience, my experience of doing uh, public law, which at LSE then we did in, in over two years, where, you know, we used to have politicians coming in to talk about, we, we joined with the School of Government, uh, and Tony's experience of doing it in Oxford were completely different because of the way it was taught. Um, you know, in today's, in today's world, all students need to know certainly about uh, well, they have to know about EU law now, but you know, international law is very, is very important. Yeah. The international component at the LSE is one of the strengths of it as a university and courses yeah. uh, for understanding international law, whether it's human rights law, commercial law, whatever it is, yeah. are equally um, important. And um, you know, what, what else is important? Uh, <laughs> I tell you what, we, we the one thing I don't know. You probably don't teach it anymore. When I was here, Professor Milson, who uh, taught English legal history, we still have it. Yeah, and uh, he was the world's leading authority on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was that was a, that was a course I did just for the love of it, and it was a, a fantastic course. And actually, I also believe is it still is it compulsory here to do jurisprudence? Yes. Because it, it is, and you love it. You know, no. you love it. It isn't always compulsory, and I think that's a shame. No, no. It is no, but in the LSE, it is yeah. compulsory because it's about the theory of law. And you <laughs> know, I know you may all think, it's, oh God, "God, how terrible is that?" It really, really matters to understand that what you're doing isn't just a series of silos, yeah. legal rules, but the theory behind those legal rules is very, very important. Absolutely. And so I think, all yeah. praise for jurisprudence. I got a first in that as well. Excellent. But then I, I did get a first in so most of them, actually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You see, um, I would say also, actually, just to add to that, I think a growing area of law um, is Islamic law. 
and we've had a we had a, I mean we had a, a series of lectures last well last calendar year during this academic year actually bringing in Islamic law practitioners and there's a growing area of uh, finance law uh, in particular and I think that is it's a fascinating area absolutely fascinating area because the whole structure is about who has authority and who can say what is Sharia compliant and what isn't and, and how you structure things is, is a really, really interesting area. So I think that is actually something which is, is somewhere where one actually needs to go. Trying to find you, people you, to teach these things, however, is... is well, I'm sure that's one of the reasons there's a problem with tribal law, frankly, because, yeah. I mean, how many people are able to teach it's, it? But the interesting thing about Sharia law, of course, is that, you know, it's not just about the law, is it? <laughs> Particularly not in Sharia, because, yeah. it, you know, this, this whole interconnectedness between law and society, or in Sharia's case, law and religion, yeah. you know, these are really fundamental, interesting political issues um, they're not necessarily always taught to law students as that you no. know, but if you understand that you'll get so much more out of it won't you? Absolutely and the accommodation of different legal systems within English law as well which I think is, is going to be an increasing area of interest but that's my own view and you're not here to listen to me you're here <laughs> to listen to Cherie so I need some more questions please Lots of hands. Wow, we're really getting going. Um, so, a gentleman um, in the middle there. I am actually going to say with grey hair, just because it enables the person to find you. And then there's a lady two rows back. And then I've got two hands way, way at the back. Oh, there are lots of hands. So I'm going to have to ask to keep your questions quite brief, because we're now racing up against the clock. So I've got a lady, uh, somebody in bright yellow. You see, always wear a bright colour to these events, and then you're spotted. And then a lady just in front of him. I think that's enough. That's four. We're going to forget after that. Uh, my name is Tony Elliott. I was two years ahead of Sharia at LSE. Um, oh, that's in, nice. I'm ALB. so, gl- I'm so, I'm even so glad. Yeah. In <laughs> fact, my first memory of you, Sharia, I must share, which was a, a first-year female student turning around in the library, this would have been in about November possibly, and saying to everybody with an earshot, what's subrogation? Mm. You've come a long way since then. Yeah. <laughs> well, my children would say that's just sad, you know, because what was I doing in the library at all? <laughs> Two anyway, months my, into my, my, question, into my university career. <laughs> anyway, my question is a very short one, which is um, what attitude do you have to positive discrimination mm-hmm. in favour of women in various contexts? Obviously, the answer may differ according to the context in which you consider it. <laughs> Good. Okay, That's and fine. then uh, lady who's two rows back here. Hello. My name is Paulina Konstantinova. I'm an alumna of the Law and Accounting Program from 2009, and I now work in the city, so this is a question from the city perspective. What are your thoughts on using mandatory quotas to push women forward in yeah. business? Mm-hmm. Well, those two link together, really, don't yeah, they? Yeah. Well, we plan that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, a yellow T-shirt. Obviously, you do have a name. But. Good evening, Mrs. Blair. Thank you for your presentation. My name is Melissa DeMello. I'm not a lawyer, but I am an LSE alumnus. I've spent quite some time in India over the last year, and one of the many wonderful things that came across to me there is the extreme zest for education and learning that children of all ages from primary school upwards and young people have, regardless of social class or socioeconomic divide. Sadly, outside of the LSE, that's not always the case in this country, and I'd welcome your thoughts on how we might encourage a greater appetite for learning here and perhaps also a greater appetite for involvement in politics in children and young people. Thank you. 
Excellent, thank you. And then there's a lady, yes, just on the corner. Um, yeah, Good evening, ma'am. Uh, my name is Shraddha. I'm from India, and I'm doing my master's here in uh, global media and communications. Um, my mother is actually, uh, she does something related to entrepreneurship back home in India, and uh, they have this forum that provides opportunities for women to take up entrepreneurship in whatever field they're interested in, from industrialization to you know, making pickle. So, like, so they're giving them this opportunity. But what they've come to realize is that people are not actually willing to come forward and take the opportunity. They're being reluctant about it. So, do you think? What do you think is the solution to make women come forward and take these opportunities that we are starting to give them? Well, fantastic. Well, in fact, for a change, I'm going to go backwards and and, and talk a little bit to to that, first of all, because um, I, too, uh, have projects in India. And when um, when I first set up my foundation, because, as you may know, I have a a long-standing contact with with India and, uh, you know, spend most of my life enjoying wearing Indian clothes. In fact, I often go to India and joke that I'm an NRI. Yeah. Um, non-resident Indian and um, so when when I was doing my projects with my foundation we did obviously something in Israel and Palestine because of the connection there but I wanted to do something slightly different in India and so I wanted I set up we ran a conference called Women Mean Business and as part of that uh, we connected with uh, an organization called the National Entrepreneurship Network, which worked in universities and in business schools across India. And we said to them, you know, we would love to uh, connect with your women entrepreneurs that you're working with. And, you know, can you can you bring them bring them along to the conference? And 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 they came back to us and they did bring some women along, but they came back to us and said, well, you know, funnily enough, when we looked at it, we realized that we never really addressed the specific issue about entrepreneurship and women. And though we do have some women in our network, you know, we realized that we weren't actually reaching out to the, to the women. And in fact, through that, um, we, we funded some work with them, which was specifically d- down to training mentors to help um, encourage women entrepreneurs um, in that in that way, and um, I found this in other places. What you have to realise in entrepreneurship is that all entrepreneurs have difficulties, but but actually, women entrepreneurs have their own particular difficulties. And if you just do a sort of one size fit, fits all program, you will not attract necessarily the women too. And you 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 know you you need to make. Uh, Programs and, and look at actually the difficulties that women have, whether in uh, which it's not totally unique to India, but um, it, an interesting problem that all the women entrepreneurs talked about when I met them, which is the mother-in-law problem. Um, the mother-in-law who thinks, mm-hmm. well, you know, why are you going out to work at all? <laughs> Uh, in, in many of these cases, or, or whether it's uh, more traditional problems of how to get access to finance when the male finance officers, again, are just wanting to look for where your husband is. And uh, mm. Having said that, there are some fantastically successful women entrepreneurs who actually show that they, uh, they can do it better than, 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 uh, than the men. So um, I do think 
to help women entrepreneurs, it's why my foundation does it, you do have to gear programs to them and to their particular problems and experiences. Um, I'll do... Um, Oh, I suppose we're talking about mm -hmm. India, so let's do Melissa next as well. Education is totally important. That's why I'm very proud that one of the things that I am is the Chancellor of the Asian University for Women, which is based in Chittagong in Bangladesh and is a regional university for women's women-only education where they get an American liberal-style, art-style Education and that that's uh, that's been going now for four or five years, and um, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing. If you you look it up on the web, you'll see its programs. It's, it's wonderful because it's the women from all over Asia, from Cambodia to Bangladesh, from uh, Sri Lanka uh, to. Nepal um, come together and so you have a mixture also of faiths and, and indeed the, the school uh, boards the girls in mixed faith groups. Uh, it's a wonderful example of celebrating the culture of Asia and, and, and encouraging the, the girls to work together. And all those girls have to do mm. compulsory martial arts. arts. It's one of their courses <laughs> to actually teach them uh, self-defense. One of the sad things I, I find when I talk to those girls as well is that many of them who've had such a struggle, we have girls from Afghanistan, such a struggle because it, they're most of the 90% scholarship, get such a struggle to get education. And many of them say to me, I know now that I've got this education, I want to go back and serve my community. You know, I'll never get married because the men you know, won't want to marry someone who's better educated than they are. But they say, I don't care, I want to... I want to do this. So there, of course, as you say, a real passion, real passion for education, because in a sense, they understand a bit, a bit like I did when I came to the LSE. Mm. I knew that I wasn't going anywhere unless I actually was the best, yeah. because otherwise no one was going to give me a chance, were they? Um, and uh, whereas, as you say, here sometimes we take it for granted. Uh, we take it for granted. And... Um, that is a, a, a really sad thing, and we need to do more to ensure that that our education engages with young people and, and gives them that joy for learning. We've just seen, haven't we, a, a, a teacher be killed. Mm. And yet, when we learn about her, we understand that she was an inspirational teacher. Mm. And, of course, nothing is more important in helping children learn than an inspirational teacher. And sometimes we don't value our teachers enough. Um, my, my, my second son, the one who's a lawyer now, was on Teach First, and he, did, uh, he spent two years in a very tough school in Birmingham. And, um, you know, that really teaches you both what a tough job it is to be a teacher mm. Not, of course, a university teacher. That's easy. There's a doddle. Uh, the doddle. They're very but, well trained by the time yeah. they come here. But, but, how, you know, but, but how inspiring they, yeah. they can be. The two questions that go together, which is uh, Tony's question and Paulina are about uh, mandatory quotas, or as Tony described it, positive discrimination. Tony, do not use that word at all. Positive <laughs> action. Is fine. <laughs> Positive discrimination suggests that somehow the women don't deserve the help they're getting. 
it is not that they don't deserve it. It's actually because unless we take steps to ensure that women get the opportunities that they do deserve, um, there won't be a, a level playing field. Um, I always uh, remember at one occasion a few years back, I was asked to speak at a group of students for Spain who were over the, the, the First Lady of Spain asked me would I greet, meet these students who were over on a Santander program and I went and talked to them about women's human rights and all the sort of things I've been talking about and at the end a, a young man, 18 year old stood up and we'd had this conversation he said to me, well he said it's all very well what you're saying but those girls are going to take my job <laughs> and I tell you a lot of people who use the language of positive discrimination and favorable treatment and you know these women don't deserve it what they're really saying is they're taking my job and as I said to him we live in a, in a world where nobody should be entitled to a job for whatever criteria it is whether it's because your father's wealthy enough or because you're a man all because you're from a, a favoured ethnic group. Mm -hmm. But we need to be in a world where everybody has the chance, if they are qualified with the skills to do the job, to do the job that they're qualified to do. And unfortunately, we have too much situation in the world where it's not about whether you're qualified to do the job, but it's about all those things or who you know. Uh, and... Uh, Positive discrimination always leads to talk to political correctness, which is another word that I would ban from the entire vocabulary. Because, again, it's people who are trying to pretend that their prejudices aren't prejudices at all, but they're just combating what they perceive to be someone else's prejudices. Mm -hmm. Political correctness is about treating everybody as an equal and with dignity. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not about um, bashing anybody. Going on to mandatory quotas, um, as I've already said, I think it works in politics. Um, it makes a really big difference. I think that if we don't have quotas, such as the women on boards that we've seen coming through, through, through Europe, and I know Vivian Redding very well, who is leading that on the European level, uh, it's going to take literally hundreds of years before we reach, achieve equality. And we haven't got 100 years to wait to make sure the best people are getting into those jobs. And if we have to kickstart that process by actually forcing uh, employers to look at this issue, I think I would like to see that as something that wouldn't last forever. But I think we do need to kickstart the process. And if you look at the Davis report, which I'm sure some of you have about women on boards, you know, there's some shocking things in there. Most non-executive directors on boards were appointed not by open competition, but because they knew the chairman. You know, where would they know the chairman? Well, I'm not saying in the, invariably, but a lot of the time because they go to the same golf clubs or the same, yeah, you know, that is not fishing in a broad enough pool by any means. And then you know, the, the, the report also showed asking the recruitment companies, they'd all say, oh, but, you know, we can't find the women. Mm. Uh, Christine Lagarde, who herself was finance minister mm. of, of France and, of course, now heads the IMF, you know, I've spoken on platforms with her and she'll say that, you know, when the French people, the French companies would say that to her, she would get out her handbag and say, well, here's a list of, you know, 20 <laughs> names of, of women who are very well qualified for, for, for the job. You know, start with them. Um, 
you have to kickstart people into thinking more imaginatively and that's why there is a role for quotas and uh, I'm very glad that in our country we have initiatives like the 30% Club and all that Helena Morrissey is doing in the city uh, to make that happen. But, you know, it's not just about boards, is it? If all we get is some more women on boards, we haven't really achieved equality. And more and more people are talking about, well, how many more women have we got who are executive directors? And beneath that, how are we getting women along the pipeline? And that takes me back to, to mentoring. It takes me back to women's networks and women's role models so that there are no longer any male-only occupations. There are just occupations open to whoever has the right skill set and the right talent and who uh, dares apply. Excellent. I think that's fantastic. And we are amazingly running up against time here. But I think, to be honest, this has been a fantastic and inspirational evening. And we've been, Sherry's been talking about mentors and role models. And I, I think you have a fantastic one here uh, for in all walks of life, of all gender, uh, an amazing pioneer in many, many respects. So can we please show our appreciation for this evening? <laughs>